So tonight's talk is about the pursuit of happiness. I thought it good to explore this subject uh, because it's always just an exploration, really. I don't have all the answers and I, I bring together my limited experience and um, connection with the Dharma and offer it to you so that you can let it roll around in your own hearts and minds and come up with your own wisdom. This subject of happiness is important to me because that sense of energy gives us a kind of energy which is a boon to our practice. And a lot of our practice has to do with suffering or dukkha and going through it. And so tuning in to the lightness and the the energy of happiness is something that we don't often do on purpose and which I found doing more of is really helpful to our practice because it can bring us to a place of balance and heaven knows we really need that balance in our lives um, in our practice especially which can tend to open to us many places of um, difficulty and of darkness and of course in our daily lives where we may be able to intentionally reflect on areas that we don't normally go to on a day-to-day basis. So this kind of happiness is not about getting or acquiring anything, but it's more about learning how to let go through different practices, more about appreciating, and not being weighed down by seeing through the lens of ignorance, knowing when we are seeing through the lens of ignorance, letting that go, and being able to bring about a kind of wisdom, for example, through the practice of equanimity, that helps us to see life in more balance, to live life in more balance. So some of the kinds of happinesses we can rejoice in and develop by giving it more attention are the happiness of gratitude, the happiness of generosity, which is majorly fed by metta or loving-kindness, the happiness of seclusion of the mind, which we're developing here through our practice of the continuity of concentration, the Uh, practice of developing wisdom, which we're also practicing here. So these are all uh, practices that are available to us in coming to an intensive retreat like this, bringing home to our daily lives, adding some to our daily lives, gratitude, generosity, virtuous activity, the practice of sila, We all uh, turn our minds towards a training every morning to refrain from certain kinds of harmful speech and action. This is virtuous activity. So the Buddha said that there are two kinds of remarkably rare and precious human beings in this world. Those human beings who are grateful and those human beings who uh, express and practice generosity. So first I'd like to talk about gratitude and then touch upon uh, the various other places where we can tune our hearts. Gratitude, when we reflect on it and we practice it, we know what happens when we practice it, begins to dissolve that sense of me and you, of us and them. Uh, It dissolves that sense of a boundary line between ourselves and others because we connect. It's a way of connecting, like generosity, which I'll speak about in a moment. But 
gratitude is is something that is coming more to the forefront of practice these days, everyday practice, a lot because, I think because there's been a lot of scientific evidence that gratitude is a good thing for our minds and our bodies. And so um, just tuning more into that because I'm exposed to it and turning the mind more to that uh, more than I usually do has helped me to see the the benefit that comes from that. It's for me it's it's a kind of holy communion with life where I consciously ponder on something that I'm gra- I'm grateful for. It might just be a moment with one of my grandchildren and just to have a grandchild is a wonderful thing. It's a whole new world and just to see them smile or the wonderment of of a new life and you know never mind what they're going to be faced with i put that aside for a while but <laughs> just the fact that they're around in all their you know naughty ways and they bring cheerfulness to our lives little children you know it doesn't have to be your grandchild it could be anybody i I say all the time to my friends and, and to Steve, gee, if I could finally retire and just spend a little more time on Maui, I try to volunteer in the kindergarten uh, classes or nursery and, and see if you know maybe they'd accept me. <laughs> they probably would to help out and just to be around kids. It's wonderful. That's just one little place where we can have some gratitude. You, you could find dozens of other uh, reasons and places to find gratitude in your life. Just a simple butterfly, you know, floating by. And that moment of beauty where you think of nothing else but see the beauty of color and those light wings landing on a flower nearby. And nothing else is happening in the world but just that. The gratitude that comes from that, like so much gratitude for butterflies and for their passing presence in our life. And it reminds uh, me of this beautiful old poem by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Happiness is a butterfly, which when pursued is always beyond our grasp. But if you will sit down quietly it may alight upon you. So, this holy communion with life that comes from those moments when we're just so in tune with something that makes us happy, something wholesome, of course. The leaves fluttering. You know, when I'm walking here, and I'm I'm always a little bit nervous about um, offering the Dharma, you know, doing the right thing, and just turning my eyes towards those trees that flutter and watching the leaves and for a moment taking it in with gratitude that we're in this place of beauty and we're protected by so much beauty in a way. So it's this deep realization that my life depends on the kindness of many. And sometimes if we just take the time to sit down and think from the moment of our birth just on the kindnesses that were offered to us that helped helped us to this very time in being here kindnesses that we can't even imagine of people helping us during the birthing time and people helping our families that helped us our families that helped raise us and Sometimes I remember my first grade teacher, Miss Flake. (laughs) Funny name, but (laughs) I remember her so clearly. She was so kind to me. And um, I don't remember specific instances, but just her smile, just her face, and her gentle movement towards me in times when I can still remember if if I felt nervous, I was a real 
shy little girl and um, real nervous. And her movement towards me was really gentle and kind. And just all along the way, how, I don't know, I, I could sit here and spend the whole hour telling you about the, all the people in my life and my three aunties who raised me along with my mother, you know, wow, what strong women were in my life. And they're gone now, but they were really important to me. Just all the little things that they imparted to me that have great meaning now. So my whole life, I'm here today because of all that kindness. And it's immeasurable. And when I can reflect on that, it gives me great happiness. It's not the kind of happiness that I'm bouncing up and down about, but it's a kind of happiness that's really grounding. That's the kind of happiness I'm talking about. A grounding kind of happiness. Not something that I'm going to laugh about like a joke, but a kind of happiness that really sinks the roots of my well-being into the ground and says that nothing can ever shake this well-being when I remember that kindness. So, you know, being in the realm that I'm in, this Dharma realm and teaching realm, I'm connected with a lot of things that, scientific studies that are connected with the Dharma. And one I was most interested in the scientific studies on calming the mind and what happens when a mind compa- uh, practices compassion, other meditative experiences. A lot of that is actually happening here in Madison, Wisconsin through a friend and colleague of ours, Richie Davison. Actually, he and a group of people in not this last year but the year before um, did some research on three-month course yogis. Like, what was their minds like? They connected all these nodes to their head. What was their mind like before the three-month course? And what was it like after? And they came out with this scientific evidence that was amazing to science, but kind of ho-hum to us. You know? (laughs) that Yeah, duh, it produces all these wonderful effects. But most recently, there was a news release on how the attitude of gratitude has beneficial effects on the physical and mental well-being. So in those moments when we're mindful of feeling gratitude, not just the feeling of gratitude that comes, but then we know that we're feeling gratitude. So knowing what's going on in your mind, which is what we're you're trying to emphasize now is so important because knowing the wholesome states of mind actually strengthen them. So being mindful and knowing the feeling of gratitude brings a deep sense of relaxation, they say, and gives rise to a quiet kind of happiness. So not so long ago, I... Um, about in March. It was a year anniversary of my mother's passing away. And I was putting some pictures away of her that I had had up. I was actually just changing some around. And um, there were some of her younger and some of her actually just on, on her birthday before she passed away, about a couple of months before. And I saw her picture when she was younger and then her picture when she was older. And it just passed through my mind, you know, in just a few moments, what her life must have been like, what the things she must have seen that made her the woman she was and helped her to impart what she needed to impart to her children. Even just being a very simple woman, having only um, gone up to the fourth grade of elementary school. She had a powerful effect on my life. And I just had this wave of gratitude for her that I never stopped to ponder on. Of course, there were many moments where 
I feel grateful to have a mother. I feel grateful to have this mother and the various acts uh, that I remembered of her. But just taking in her whole life like that or what I could of it in those moments, that wave of gratitude that came up that was... um, The roots of that went a lot deeper than I thought. So I decided to keep her pictures up and um, where, where I could see it every day just so I could be reminded. And I kept them up so I could have that connection of gratitude because that feeling of well-being sustains my life and she's still a part of my life. You know, even though she's gone, of course. So I put them up and I say, I must remember the benefit of this. In the Tibetan teachings, there are four most precious opportunities. And I'll name the four and I'll speak more about one. The first one, which I'll speak about more, is being born as a human. And the second one is hearing the Dharma. The third is finding a teacher to help awaken us. And the fourth is becoming awakened. So essentially, we're privileged to have all of these opportunities. But do we really ponder on them? Do we really reflect on them? as a way of bringing up that well-being, that gratitude that is a boon to our lives and to our practice. If you take a look at your own heart, when the wave of gratitude comes, it feeds us. There's a nurturing that takes place that's beyond any food, beyond any smell, beyond any sight. Of these four, mostly I have gratitude for hearing the Dhamma. You know, that's most prevalent. There are times when I hear the Dhamma, it could be the same Dhamma talk. Like I, I noticed on Steve's Four Noble Truths Dhamma talk, there's, he puts on the side, you know, when he's given it, how many times, and it's a long, long list of how many times he's given the Four Noble Truths. And every time, he's going to give that talk. Even if I'm tired or I don't have to go, I say, I'm going. Because to hear that talk gives me a lot of gratitude. It was actually the the talk of the Buddha that turned the wheel of the Dhamma. And so it's it's really precious to, to hear the Dhamma. And I can have tears of gratitude for talks that I've heard over and over again. Just to be able to hear the Dhamma, there's a lot of gratitude. But the one, the first one, I don't often reflect on, being born as a human. Um, Of course, you know, you're in this human body and there's a lot of aches and pains and, you know, you get older and you feel more aches and pains and you have more children and more grandchildren and, and just the dukkha grows in a way, you know. <laughs> There's dukkha here, dukkha there, dukkha everywhere. And it's like that's what we face over and over again. And turning the mind to why it's precious that we're born human is, is a good thing to do. We don't often, in our busy and responsible lives, don't reflect on that. We don't have space sometimes. It's said that on this plane of existence, on the human plane, um, it's said in the Buddhist cosmology that there are 31 planes of existence. Is it 31, Steve? 31 planes of existence. And um, like Manindra says, you know, it may, you may not believe it. It's true, but you may not believe it. That, that's what he says. Um, And it's true, I may not believe it. Um, (laughs) But in any case, you know, that's what they say, so maybe, you know what, I'm open to new ideas, so 
why, why shouldn't I be open? Why do I have to have a closed mind? So it may be true. And it's said that on this plane of existence, there's just enough pain and just enough pleasure, actually a little more pain than pleasure, to keep us interested in, in what's this life all about anyway? If there were too much pleasure, like there are in some realms of existence where, by the way, those beings aren't necessarily free from greed, hatred, and delusion, even when there's a, a lot, a lot of pleasure. When there's a lot of pleasure, we wouldn't tend to be interested in anything else but experiencing more pleasure. In fact, again, psychological um, studies have shown that feeling good only creates hunger for more pleasure. Isn't that, I mean, that's right along with the Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination. Pleasant gives rise to attachment. Pleasant feeling gives rise to attachment if we're not mindful of it. So this is what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Feeling good creates hunger for more and more feeling good unless we're mindful of that. So if it's predominantly pain, which isn't in our, you know, there might be a little more, but it's not so overwhelming, we feel hopeless, and there would be no energy to be interested in anything else but getting rid of the pain. So we're, we're in this realm where there's the possibility, the potential to... Um, to try to see what the meaning of life is, to kind of uh, see whether there's something beyond pain and pleasure. Actually, pain of life gives rise to seeking out relief, it is said. So this is in the, the Tibetan teachings. They say, this is the rarity of being born human. And they give this metaphor. The chances of being born into the human realm are quite precious and rare. And the odds are like this. Suppose there was a blind turtle swimming in waters as vast as the seven seas. Imagine that somewhere in that vast expanse of ocean, floating upon those waters was a hoop or a yoke. And underneath those seas, swimming was a blind turtle. Every 100 years, that blind turtle would come up for for air. It must have been a special turtle to come up, you know, just every 100 years. But anyway, that's a story, okay? Come up every 100 years for air. The chances of that turtle coming up through that hoop would be phenomenally rare. It is said that that rarity is the rarity of being born a human being. Whether we believe it or not, but that's what the Tibetans say. So again, on the web, I found this experiment by a psychology department, University of Miami, 2003. It was about counting one's blessings instead of one's burdens. The experiment was about the effect of a grateful outlook uh, on life and how it affects us psychologically and physically. So the participants were randomly assigned to one of three groups. One group were asked to reflect daily on their hassles of life, just to go there, just how things hassled them. The other group uh, was to reflect on gratitude, and the third group was to reflect on just neutral things in life, neither the hassles nor gratitude, but just on everyday neutral things. They were asked to keep weekly records of their moods, of their coping behaviors, of what happens to their health, 
and their overall life appraisals. It was found that the attitude, the gratitude outlook group exhibited heightened well-being across all four areas, moods, coping behaviors, health behaviors, and overall life appraisal. Just by reflecting, turning to what they felt grateful for, recording it, reflecting on it daily. So just the results of this experiment suggested that a conscious focus on this attitude of gratitude in our life may have emotional and and health benefits. And so I haven't looked up other studies, but I just briefly uh, read how it affects somewhere in the physical brain, how it changes that, even in the physical brain, what the, uh, how gratitude can affect that. Researchers have found that when we think about someone or something, we really appreciate and experience the feeling that goes with the thought. Now this is meta practice also. The parasympathetic calming branch of the autonomic nervous system is triggered. This pattern, when repeated, bestows a protective effect on the physical heart. The electromagnetic heart patterns of volunteers tested become more coherent and ordered when they activate feelings of appreciation. There is evidence that when we practice bringing attention to what we appreciate in our lives, more positive emotions emerge, leading to beneficial alterations in heart rate variability. This may not relieve hypertension, but reduce the risk of sudden death from coronary artery disease. (laughs) The more we pause to appreciate and show caring and compassion, the more order and coherence we experience internally when our hearts are in an quote-unquote internal coherent state Studies suggest that we enjoy the capacity to be peaceful and calm, yet retain the ability to respond appropriately to stressful circumstances. So that's, you know, very scientific and sometimes, you know, kind of beyond us. But I came across this beautiful poem that's just down to earth, And this poem is by Jane Kenyon. And um, sometimes poets point to things a lot more down-to-earth than science. And this poet, Jane Kenyon, really understood appreciation. So this um, poem has a lot of genuine life in it. Much of her life, until she died of leukemia, she had uh, she suffered from bipolar disease and depression. So this is her poem, Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls. It might have been otherwise. And I planned another day just like this. But one day, I know... It will be otherwise. So that's about gratitude, how it brings us a lot of happiness. And I wanted to speak about that most tonight. Another is generosity. Over the years, I've spoken a lot about generosity, so I won't go into detail about that. But just the fact that it brings a lot of happiness. Again, like... Gratitude, it gives us a sense of connection with others. It makes us feel that we're not alone. We're in this, we live in this great web of, of life. We're connected. 
um, to everyone. Someone who was here at the weekend retreat, who left, wrote a long um, little note of how it was for this person in retreat. And she expressed how her practice of generosity and her ability actually to receive generosity helped her feel so connected to this community where she felt that she somehow lost her connection. But just all of you receiving her, being kind, like everyone does with everyone else, it made her feel in this kind of safe web of interconnection. And she didn't talk about happiness, but I can imagine that it gave her a lot of happiness. So it makes us feel that safety and that power of being part of something bigger than ourselves. That it's not all about me when we practice generosity. It's about us. It's about the bigger picture. It's about the giving, the sharing, and the knowing that somehow it's a big circle of life. Um, Earlier I mentioned how psychologists say that feeling good only produces more hunger for pleasure. But in the same sentence they say, doing good produces lasting happiness. And so this generosity is about doing good. We take a moment to remember our acts of generosity. Any time we can take a moment to do that. And just even if you remember quickly now something, you, you can feel that deep sense of stability in your heart, that kind of happiness that's well-being. It doesn't fade away. It can come back over and over and over again. I have a friend, Steve and I have a friend, um, He's he doesn't have very much, so what he's done is He's given his bone marrow two times and he gave away a kidney. I mean, (laughs) he's just kind of sharing his body with others. (laughs) And um, so the first time he gave his bone marrow, he didn't feel really well. And we were around him during that time. And so the second time he gave away his bone marrow, he was really not too well. He had fever and people were taking care of him at IMS. where we teach in Massachusetts and he came out one time we're having lunch outside and he sat down with us you know all covered in a blanket and I said it was it was really hard the first time but you did it again well why did you do it again so I I wrote down what he said and um, I found it and he said because the happiness is greater than the pain the happiness to give was greater than the pain. And I found that really inspiring. And it's true. Giving away, giving is really not about the material. It is about the material thing. It's about our time. It's about, you know, our energy. But really, we're giving away our greed. You know, our, we're giving away the habit of holding on. That's what we're, we're giving away. Developing non-attachment, loving-kindness, all of those good things. So there's a lot of well-being that comes from that. A lot of uh, connection. So that's gratitude and generosity. And another source of happiness is a happiness from actively being aware of the non-harming principles that we practice. So every morning we're reminded of these trainings that we do our best to undertake. We undertake the training to not harm any living being. We undertake the training to not take 
what hasn't been offered. We undertake the training to not use our sexual energy in a way that harms others directly or indirectly. To not use our speech to harm others is the fourth one. We're protected by noble silence here. We undertake the training to refrain from using any kinds of intoxicants or drugs that cloud the mind. So what these precepts um, protect us from, firstly, they protect us from greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, all of those cover one form of greed, hatred, or delusion. Also, of course, in a big way, it protects others from whatever greed, hatred, and delusion we might act out when we're not aware of what our actions and our words would do. When we practice in in this way, the effect on our hearts and our minds is great. I I, I haven't heard of any scientific study yet on this, but... I bet if they, if they did study this in some way, they would find out that the effect on our own hearts and our minds is very great. That to live in a state of um, knowing that you won't be blamed, living in a state of blamelessness, being free from even remorse. Remorse in our culture is a good thing. But even being free from that, where the sense of well-being and happiness that comes from that is very great. In the Buddha's teachings, it said that there are two qualities within each of us that are guardians of the world. So what, those two qualities are in each human being. So each human being can be a guardian of the world. And those two qualities actually are the qualities that feed, nurture, are the basis, foundation for those precepts of non-harming. And not just of non-harming, but of doing good in the world. So they call these guardians, Hiri, H-I-R-I, I just say this for all of you more experienced. You'll hear this word more often in the Dharma. Hiri and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. Hiri is a respect for others. Otapa is a respect for ourselves. And they come together. Because when we really respect ourselves, we don't want to do anything that will drop another unwholesome karmic seed into our mind stream that will give the result, uh, that will give an unpleasant result. So we have so much respect for ourselves, for our karmic mind stream, that we also respect others. Or it could come vice versa. The respect... um, for understanding the laws of cause and effect. So what this does is it gives a sense of safety, not only to others, but a sense of safety to ourselves. This is a gift that we give. It's the greatest gift that we can give, the gift of to ourselves of a, a clean heart and a clean mind, and the gift to others of a feeling of fearlessness so that when others are around us they don't fear they they in in a way they can rely on on us that we we aren't going to come out with some um, some comment or some uh, action that is going to hurt us or sting us and when we're around others like that uh we don't have to feel so guarded. So we can appreciate this virtuous activity, the happiness of virtuous activity. 
This is from The Heart Essence of Great Perfection from one of the great Dzogchen masters. I took this quote and it doesn't even say who the Dzogchen master is, Tibetan teacher. Now in our day-to-day lives we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is the source of our happiness. And the precepts have to do with discipline. They're part of our discipline, part of our training. We remind ourselves every day as much as we can. So there's gratitude, generosity, virtuous activity, which has to do with um, living in harmony with with non-harming. And then there is the seclusion of mind, the happiness that comes from seclusion of mind. So this concentration is seclusion of mind. Now it doesn't, we're not practicing the kind of concentration where we have one object that we're putting our minds to over and over and over again so that our minds can be completely clear of everything else, just that object. That's one kind of concentration that's called samatha uh, practice. The concentration we're doing here is actually the continuity of awareness on changing experience. So this continuity of awareness, when we bring mindfulness to changing experiences, this can also bring some kind of seclusion of mind. There's, um, there are the jhanic factors that arise from samatha. Uh, jhanic factors are factors that nurture deep concentration. But there are also jhanic factors that get developed by practicing vipassana, this kind of practice that we're doing here. We experience when that kind of seclusion of mind comes, we experience a mind even momentarily free from any of the hindrances. When the mind is really awake, when it's not restless, when it's free from greed, any kind of clinging, free from pushing anything away, uh, free from doubt. It's free from doubt because the experience in the moment is really clear. We're not we're not doubting the present moment experience. We may have bigger doubts at another time, but we don't doubt the present moment experience. So in the moment, we're free from all kinds of hindrances. And that gives a temporary purity of mind. It doesn't last forever, but the more that we continue the practice, the more we experience this seclusion of mind. The jhanic factors in vipassana become well-developed because of continuity. And so there is a kind of happiness that comes from this. Two of the jhanic factors are called piti and sukha. They're just Pali words. They might not make any difference to you. But I love the um, the translation. Uh, happy comfort of body and mind. And... <laughs> I remember experiencing this, you know, during my practice. And then when I saw the words, you know, or somebody said the words, or somehow the words came into my mind from out outside, happy comfort of body and mind. It just, it's true. You know, there's a kind of happiness that's not about the happiness of tasting something good, hearing something um, that's uh nice to the ears, seeing something beautiful, experiencing something bodily that's really pleasant. But when the mind was free from hindrances, there was this happiness that arose that was more sublime than any kind of physical happiness at any of the five sense doors. 
and it came from the freedom from hindrances from those moments and they could be long moments too so this is a kind of happiness that can come from our practice when we continue when we have this continuity in our practice so this is the happiness of concentration the seclusion of mind then there is the joy that comes from seeing the Dhamma from seeing things as they really are even when it's difficult to accept in the moment of difficulty it may not be so joyful but after going through uh, a lot of experiences of seeing, experiencing dukkha or suffering in its various forms and developing equanimity around it there's a joy that comes that says this mind can experience anything and be open to everything and there can be that deep sense of well-being it's not a chuckling kind of joy or you know like that but it's like that deep sense of well-being that knows the great stability the mind and heart can have it's not just on the surface it's developing this kind of wisdom that sees things as they are recently uh, in retreat in that retreat I had every retreat there's a lot of there's a certain amount of suffering and a certain amount of joy this kind of joy but there was different suffering than than before of course you know I remember once going to Upandita and I had gone through a period of time in in a previous year where it was there was so much pain and I wanted to leave many times but he made me stay and um at the end of the retreat there was a lot of sublime peace and I said will I ever experience this suffering again and he said no the next time I went the suffering was harder (laughs) and I said you told me that I would never have to experience this suffering again and he said you're not experience that suffering (laughs) you're experiencing this suffering (laughs) by the way you know that over the years we just naturally develop more equanimity so we're able to experience more and, and different degrees of suffering so that's what happens <laughs> so it's um, but it does it, it somehow that mind of wisdom gets stronger than the suffering so we, we just open to, to more um, there's kind of a deep satisfaction a sense of well-being that happens when you see the Dhamma when you see the truth so I'm just remembering hearing one Dhamma talk when someone said in a cave, someone that was in a cave for a long time in Sri Lanka or something, and he came out of the cave, a monk, and he said, oh, what joy to know that there is no hope in the world. (laughs) You know, to just finally come stop trying to fix everything, stop trying to, you know, just to surrender and work with what you've got that it's just all changing when the mind is pure when there's the purity temporarily from the hindrances and when the mind develops this purity of view that means that the mind is not filled with the wrong view of how things are this is wisdom when mind is pure joy follows like a shadow that never leaves these are the words of the Buddha so there are these kinds of happinesses we have that we're nourishing gratitude, generosity, 
living in harmony or virtuous activity, seclusion from the hindrances, you know, when we can, when that happens once in a while, purifying the mind of wrong views, developing wisdom. These are all the kinds of experiences of happiness here. And then, of course, we have that practice of sympathetic joy. And there's a whole different Dharma talk on that. But just to touch upon that, sympathetic joy is one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the divine abodes. It's when we can appreciate the joy in another without the the boundary of um, envy or jealousy, wanting what they have or not wanting them to have what they have. You know, there are two different ways that we respond to joy in another that uh, is uncomfortable, as you were saying today and yesterday. So when we feel that connection, when someone's happy and we're really happy that they're happy, and it's, it's a lot because we understand that there's a lot of suffering in the world. And if you can experience one moment of wholesome joy, you know, not joy because of something unwholesome, but wholesome joy, then good for you that you can have that joy. Why not? It doesn't last forever. So that's all about happiness and the types that maybe we can tune into, we can appreciate. So I'd like to end with this um, poem I've always loved from Rumi. It's about the joy of being present, which is another joy we experience. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. So let's sit for a moment.